Well, good morning, C4 family. Oh, every time, every time, embarrassed on the podcast. Let's try it. Good morning, C4 family. Good morning. Really glad that you are uh, here this morning and uh, joining us this morning. Uh, as Pastor Joanna was just saying, we're still in our main year series of the book of John. And so if you've got your Bible physically, virtually, we'd love you to turn to the very end of John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. And that's where we're going to begin. I've shared, if you've done, uh, been part of our family for a while, a few stories from uh, my world travels that I've had the great privilege of doing. When I was um, a little bit younger, when I was in doing my undergrad, I had the great privilege of going to an amazing country called India. Uh, one of the most beautiful countries, yes, uh, I've ever experienced. Amen. Okay, bring it out. All right. And uh, I was there and... Um, and I, was, I went to India uh, actually with one other person. I'd only met for two months. He was a elders at, an elder at People's Church in Toronto. And he said, do you want to go see what God is doing in India? And I said, yes, what, that would be unbelievable. I said, what are we going to do? He says, we're going to take you through all sorts of churches in the middle of nowhere in India, and we're just going to expose you to a whole different side of the family. I said, I'm in. I can't wait to do it. And actually, this church helped me uh, to go when I was a young adult. So it was a 22-hour flight between all the delays and everything, and I finally arrived in South India, in Chennai. And uh, it was a culture shock, as you can imagine. 22 hours earlier, I was in Ajax, and now I'm in Chennai. Now, number one, I went in May. It was 120 degrees when I walked out of the airport. So, and I was 60 pounds heavier than now, so wow. Okay, so I was sweating. So I walked out. First, second of all, uh, I've, I've had, the, like I said, the great privilege of being in a lot of countries, but I have never seen so many people in my life. I mean, it was unbelievable, just everywhere. And so I arrive, and, and I arrive with my friend named David, and, and we get in a car, a version of a car, I think that's a strong word, and we get into it, and uh, we get our suitcases, and we drive through the city, and I grew up in Ecuador, so I'm used to really wild driving, so I was fine with that. And we arrived at this very modest home, and this family I'd never met, uh, a husband, a wife, and only child, welcomed me in. And they said, welcome. We're your brothers and sisters in Jesus. We're so glad to meet you. Awesome. So here I am, and it's, it's, I'm sweating, I'm tired, I'm jet-lagged, I've been blessed by uh, this family. And they said, are you hungry? I said, oh man, I'm hungry, 20-something. Yes, bring it. And uh, they said, would you like some breakfast? And I said, yeah, I, I really would. They said, well, that's great. Well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll just get you some, some coconut chutney and some rice, and, and then we'll get you some. And they said some word, and I said, well, what's that? And they described it. I said, oh, donuts. I said, I'm in. Yes, bring that. I'm Canadian. Um, it's Tim Hortons, but in a little different style. So that's fine. So they went down, and, and they brought it up to me. Now, I presumed what I was going to eat. And I've shared this story once years ago before, I believe, where I said, well, I looked at coconut chutney, and I said, well, I've had Thai food before, so it's going to be rice, and this coconut chutney is going to be sweet, and it's just going to be a little different than what I'm used to. I don't usually eat breakfast in rice, but good. So that's fine. And then donuts. I mean, how can you go wrong with donuts? And so this is great. So they're looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and, you know, this is fine, and they're they're waiting to see what I'm going to do. And so I take one of those little rice uh, round sort of things they give me and I scoop this huge thing of coconut chutney and I put it in my mouth. <laughs> Very white person moment right here. <laughs> see, I had presumed, of course, that coconut chutney was sweet. What a terrible mistake I had made. 
within, I'd say, less than a second, I was starting to shake. I'm not joking. I was burning from head to toe. I started sweating way more profusely than I had been a few seconds earlier. And they're watching me. They're not laughing. They're actually quite concerned. Because... Uh, <laughs> uh, I had no clue what had just hit me. I didn't know that chutney in the South, I first of all, didn't do my research that South India has the hottest food. And, and second of all, that their chutney, which is basically a simple street food, is filled with peppers. And so I am like dying and I'm like, water, water, you know. And so they give me water and they're very kind. I'm like, okay. And they said, well, would you like the donuts? I said, oh, thank God, at least the donuts. <laughs> they didn't tell me they were filled with peppers too. Finally, this woman looked at me and she said, would you like an egg? Yes, please, I said. I know I'm being so terrible as a foreigner, but please just give me an egg. And they were very, very kind. You know, it was that experience of breaking everything I'd learned about cross-cultural communication that got me thinking about presumption. I looked at the food and I presumed what I was about to experience in half. I mean, I, I looked at it, it, it appeared right to me in my mind, and I gave an overlay that it would be sweet and it would be very breakfast-like. I, I knew it, but it wasn't at all. And when I took it, I had a violent reaction, actually, to it because I was so unused to it. That is a great picture for us to begin our message this morning together as we dialogue and think through the life of Jesus because what's about to take place in this passage is that those who think they know what's really in front of them don't. And when they get close to Jesus, they have a violent reaction. They think the bread of life is going to be sweet in their stomach and actually it makes them get angry and vomit. It's an intense moment in the Gospels because the tide is now turning from popularity to anger to violence. If you've got your Bible this morning, like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 7, verse 53 and forward. Now, I'm going to do something this morning that I don't usually do, so I just need everyone just to stop and take a look back up here for a second. And you online, you can look at your computer more intensely. That's great. If you're looking at your scriptures this morning, you'll see that there's something noted in your Bible. You can see it at the bottom on your footnotes, if you got it, or, or in the middle. And it basically says this, that John chapter 7, verse 53 through 811, is not in the earliest manuscripts. Do you see that in your Bible, if you got it there? It's a very strong thing. They say, I'll read mine. The earliest manuscript, manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through chapter 811. So the question is, well, what does this mean? And how in the world can you preach from it if it says that? Well, let me tell you the history of this really quickly, and then I can preach from it, and then we can move on. Number one is this. The six earliest manuscripts we have of the book of John so far as discovered do not have this segment in it. Other manuscripts actually have this story in two different parts of John. Some of them have it later in John and even farther in John. Other people actually have this story found in the book of Luke. So when you read the manuscripts of Luke, this story is placed there. Other people don't have it at all. Now, here's the question we need to ask this morning. Does this mean this did not happen? Does this mean this actually should not be found in our Bibles? Does this actually mean that, John, you can't preach from this this morning? Well, actually, no, I can, and I'm, I'm about to. But let me give you some background. It's very important to understand that this story traces its roots right back to the beginning. 
There was a leader named Papias, and we've got his records around 100 AD. He was a leader, I think, in Laodicea. And he, we have his writings, and amazingly, he quotes this story verbatim at 100 AD. So 10 years after John the Apostle has died, and the book of Revelation was just written, he's quoting this in one of his communities. In the third century, there's something called the Constitution of the Holy Apostles. Don't worry about it. But it's a gathering of leaders who are talking about different things. And again, they quote this very passage verbatim. Augustine uses it. Calvin uses it. All sorts of different people used it. Now, a lot of people think they took it out because they were afraid this was going to promote adultery. That some people were so terrified by Jesus' response, even as Christians, they said, we got to take this out because people are going to say it's okay to commit adultery. Other people believe that certain groups in the Christian movement only had access to parts of the Gospels, and so it showed up in the West and not in the East. Here's the point we need to catch. This did take place. It may be part of John. It may not be part of John. It may be part of Luke. It actually may be from something we actually don't have found in the Scriptures formally, like one of the letters. But we do know, because it's found throughout church history, that it did take place. And I love what a guy, William Henderson, wrote. And I'm just going to read this for all of us so we can get going. He says, look, our final conclusion has to be this as Christians. Though it can't be proven as integral, to the gospel of John. Neither is it possible to establish the opposite with any degree of finality. We believe more, however, that what is recorded here really took place. It contains nothing that's in conflict, okay, with the rest of the apostolic spirit. Now, everyone look back at me for a second. We we can't do this this morning, but when the canon, when the Bible is brought together, there's all sorts of other books out there that claim uh, to be Christian and part of the early movement. But the Christian leaders combed through them to see if there was contradictions between the Gospels and Paul's writings and Peter's writings and these other books. And much of the time, there were blatant contradictions between them. So now if you go to chapters this morning, you can actually buy all these new discovered books. They're not new at all. We've had them since the second century, but we read them and they were radically contradicted what we find in the life of Jesus. But this story does not do that at all, as he said. So we should not, he says, remove it from the Bible, but we should retain it for our benefit. And he says, ministers should not be afraid to base sermons on it. Done. I'm going to do that this morning. And on the other hand, facts concerning textual evidence should be made known. In other words, layman's terms, we need to keep wrestling with where this came from. But this has been used by the church since 100 AD. I'm convinced it's part of God's word. And I'm going to ask the congregation, are you now ready to hear the scriptures this morning and hear from God? Yes or no? Yes, okay. If you want to do more study on it, go to Google. Be careful what you read. And okay, excellent. All right. Chapter 7, you can take that down now. Chapter 7, so much takes place in the life of Jesus. There's now open conflict between Jesus and all the religious leaders of his day. See, after Jesus, like we found out last week, gets very, very clear about what he's claiming about himself and what he is teaching It gets the attention of all the different religious movements of the day. As the crowds, like we experienced last week, begin to leave Jesus because they say, your teaching is too hard and we don't really believe that you came down from heaven. When they leave, they go back and talk. And many other people heard what Jesus has done and what he's claiming. But this isn't like a bad game of telephone. Jesus, just like with that crowd, and also, like we found out last week, with his inner circle of 12, wants to make everything clear, ready, for everybody. So what does Jesus do? 
Jesus decides to go up to the temple and openly begin to teach in the temple at the heart of the Jewish faith, and he begins to say and teach everything he's been doing in the backwater of Israel right now at the center. He moves from the fringe to the middle. Jesus does not avoid conflict. He's looking for a fight, but he's doing it for a reason because he is determined that the Jewish people and the whole world truly know why he has come. It says in John 7, 12, if you look in your Bible, this is the crowd's ongoing reaction. Among the crowds, there's widespread whispering about him. Some said, well, Jesus is a good man, and others replied, no, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews, which is the leader's. So everything's brewing now, right? Some are with him, some are against him. Everyone's talking. No one's willing to blog publicly because they're going to get nailed for it. So what happens? Well, as it happens, of course, Jesus intentionally puts himself in the place where he's now going to encounter the Jewish leaders at their heart. And so he meets the leaders, the religious experts, the authorities, and they personally begin to hear and see Jesus for the first time. And just like the crowd at first, when they meet Jesus, they are blown away at this guy. It says in verse 14 in chapter 7, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And the Jews, that the leaders, were amazed and they asked, how did this man get such learning without studying I mean, how in the world does this guy know theology and Jewish law and the Old Testament so well? How does he speak with so author- such authority? He's never studied with un- any, any of us. He's never been under the tutelage of some of the great rabbis for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. But when this guy sits down, everything happens. This is unbelievable. But then it turns ugly. See, they, like the crowd, move from being impressed by Jesus to getting shocked by Jesus, to being angered by Jesus, to rejecting Jesus. See, they're amazed that he has no formal education, no doubt about it. And actually, they're amazed that he's doing profound miracles. But when they really hear what Jesus is about, it all changes. In verse 20 in chapter 7, they turn around and they say a really nice thing to him. You are demon-possessed. Nice. You are filled with an unholy angel, and you're trying to deceive the people. In verse 27 in chapter 7, they say, well, you can't be the Christ and the Messiah, because don't you know you were born in the wrong town? In chapter 8, verse 13, they say, listen, you're just a liar, so shut up. In verse 19, they call him a bastard and ask him, ready, where is your father? It's very interesting. Dave powerfully preached this in Christmas that the whole idea of the virgin birth and the missing of Joseph follows Jesus his whole life. And in chapter 8, verse 19, they call him out and they say, you are a product of adultery or fornication. We know that you're trying to cover up your roots so you won't get publicly exposed. Prove and show us your dad. Not only that, it gets even worse. In verse 48, they remove all restraint and they call Jesus something in that day which was racially charged and also religiously charged. They said, listen, you're nothing but a Samaritan. And then in 59, in chapter 8, they get so angry at Jesus, though they have no right to do this legally at this moment, they actually pick up stones and try stoning him to death right on the place. I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote when he said they accuse him of contradiction, then they get filled with cynicism, then they're filled with denial, then they insult Jesus, then they turn to sarcasm, and then they become violent. 
Now, in the middle of all this religious and racial and political and personal conflict, in comes this little passage we're going to hear about today. And I really think I know why scholars placed it here, whether it's part of John officially or not. See, this little passage is all about one word, judgment. Who has the right and who has the authority to judge someone's motives, sin, and claims? See, in chapter 7 and 8, it's all about the religious experts coming as the experts judging Jesus and checking out Jesus and declaring what's okay or what's not okay. But as we have learned and we know for followers of Jesus, Jesus has come to be their judge. Why? Because he's come down from heaven. And since he's light, darkness is always exposed by him. So what to do with Jesus, they thought. I mean, now they're in a really serious problem. How can we trap him or kill him? We need to get this dangerous leader out of the way. Listen, none of us are debating his signs. They're real. He's much too powerful. He's an amazing teacher. But see, that's our concern because we think he's a false teacher. So we need to publicly discredit him so the crowd turns against him and we save them. See, don't get too angry at the religious leaders too quickly. They genuinely in their hearts believe that Jesus is a false messiah. They really, as pastors and leaders, are concerned for themselves and for the purity of their faith and the people. And so they have deemed this man a demon-possessed man or a man who is coming under false pretenses. He's not being honest about his history. He's not been vetted enough. And so we need to shut him down because you know what? He looks okay now, but later all hell's going to break loose. So you've got genuine sincerity on one point, And on the other, uh, other side, you've got jealousy. It's like salt water and spring water all in their hearts at one time. The encounter begins like this in John 7, 53. Each one went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts. And all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The pattern is the pattern we see throughout all the Gospels. Jesus, just before extreme moments always is alone with the Father in prayer. Why? Because Jesus has told us he does nothing on his own accord but what the Father wants. Why is Jesus alone with the Father all the time? Reading our daily bread and having devotional time? Not really. He is meeting with the Father to get his next assignment, to be empowered, to get ready to do the next thing that will bring the kingdom of God closer on earth, more aggressive on earth. So he comes to the Father. And what happens? The assignment is he goes to the temple. And so he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. By this time, the leaders know that in their minds, at least, he is false, he is dangerous, and he must be dealt with in the most public of ways. So imagine the scene. Jesus walks into Herod's temple, one of the most beautiful buildings in ancient history, the center of the Jewish faith. Fifty people, maybe a hundred, two hundred, or even thousands suddenly hear that Jesus is teaching in one of the courts. The people begin to stand and sit around Jesus as he preaches. And as this is happening, he's not alone, by the way. There are other rabbis with other followers spread across listening to teaching. Then there are guards. Then there's the high priest and all the priests. And, priests and oh, there's sacrifices taking place. All of this is taking place at once. And then it happened. Shouting. 
a real rumbling takes place, a noise from the fringe of Jesus's crowd. And as the crowd turns around, they see there's some significant leaders coming. And so the crowd parts like water and a group of high-end religious leaders begin walking towards Jesus. But in front of them is a woman and they literally force and push this woman in front of Jesus. And as they arrive and they look at Jesus and the crowd goes silent and all things turn to this woman, the ugly story comes out this way. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't want you to miss this this morning. It's important. Notice that there are two religious groups gathering here, not one. You have teachers of the law or scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were the lawyers of the day. They were the experts in religious law and customs. Most of them lived in Jerusalem because they actually got their education based on someone else's wealth. They were highly loyal to the high priest, and they were the best bureaucrats and lawyers of the day, and they were expert upon expert upon expert at God's work. Pharisees weren't those people at all. Like I preached a few months ago, if you've grown up in church, you know Pharisees have got a bad rap. We even songs against them, you know, I don't want to be a Pharisee, etc. It's interesting though, Pharisees actually in their day were considered some of the best people you could ever know. Pharisee, by the way, simply means separated one. They weren't wealthy, they weren't highly educated like the scribes, but they were among the ordinary people. Ordinary people loved Pharisees overall because the Pharisees were lay preachers and lay scholars and they had no time for the politics of the temple and they had no time for playing God games. They wanted to live an authentic, holy life and show other people how to do it. And so their whole life as a separated one was to lift out every command in the Old Testament plus over a hundred other commands they had personally written to prevent you from breaking the first ones. These were serious men about God's work. But interestingly, notice this. So the lawyers and the bureaucrats and the lay preachers all gather together and they don't like each other because they need to deal with someone who's dangerous. Isn't it true that enemies make strange bedfellows? And so suddenly at this moment, at this day, the best preachers and the best religious lawyers of the day are bringing this case. Actually, they're bringing a person before Jesus. And it says that this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, either this woman actually is married already or she is engaged to be married. But see, in this culture, it has the same designation. We know this if you've grown up in church or done church for a while. I think we talked about it at Christmas. You see it right in the Christmas story. Remember Matthew 1.18? And this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged, engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had, mind in, had in his mind to divorce her quietly. Now, I want you to catch this this morning. Though they're engaged, he is called husband. And though they are engaged, he has to divorce her. Why? Because once you get engaged in this culture, you are married. And so whether you are physically married or you are about to be physically married, if you commit adultery during either of those episodes, this is really serious. Why did Joseph do this? Was he just trying to be a good guy? Well, more than that. He knew adultery would not only bring great distress and public shame on Mary, there was so much more. See, if you're engaged or you're married and you're found guilty of adultery, this, this is the penalty, death. How do you think that would change our culture today? Death. 
It says that this group of men that represents God grabs this woman and they make her come before Jesus. We don't know if she's engaged or literally married, but she's committed this. Verse 3 reads like this. They made her stand before the whole group. Look at that. You read that so easily, don't you? But feel that this morning. Can you feel the fear, ladies? The terror, the humiliation, the guilt and the shame. This is a woman in a culture that is run by men. And she's surrounded by men. And it's not just men. She's surrounded by men with power. Not just power. In this culture, the strongest power. It's called religious power. And not only that, I never thought about it until this week. She is now thrust in front of the most famous preacher of the day. This would be like in the 1960s, throwing someone in front of Billy Graham. And so you've got the strongest men with the strongest power, now in front of the strongest preacher. And oh, by the way, this is in front of a massive crowd between 100 and maybe 1,000 people. And oh, here's something even worse. This is in God's very temple. This is the most holy place on earth. This is the place where heaven and earth literally touch. This is where, ready, God's holy presence is actually found. And here she is, in God's house, in front of God in flesh, brought by the most powerful men of her day, in front of hundreds or thousands of strangers. And then, of course, the leaders do what they must do. They cry out and they brand her publicly, adulteress. Oh, how the crowds would talk. If there was Twitter, can you imagine? She is totally exposed. She cannot run. She is caught, which means, by the way, she was either grabbed during the act of sex or right after. And, and, and by the way, this is not some like well-written TV show or, or, or movie. This is not fiction. This actually happened to this woman. I'm sure she was roughly clothed and brought, but I want, to, I want everyone to hear this this morning. She was brought to be used to kill someone else. So there she is. The most exposed situation possible in front of God and all of his leaders and her whole community. And it says in verse 4, the leaders ask Jesus, teacher, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. Teacher, at least we're going to give you the right to get involved in the debate. We'll give you uh, the, the right, right? You are a rabbi. And by the way, they say, this is no setup. For her, at least. I mean, we saw, we know, this is not false accusation. We have two or three witnesses. She is guilty, and she has broken her marriage vows. And then they did it. See, they laid the trap, seeming so kind towards Jesus, giving the right words and the right titles, about to use God's word. Everything looks as it should, but it's not right at all. I want you again to see and feel this. They don't care about Jesus. They're not really here to ask him a question. They're here to destroy him. And oh, by the way, they do not care at all about this woman. She's a lawbreaker and a homewrecker and a sinner, and she's guilty. And by the way, we would have killed her earlier, but she's useful to us because we can kill two birds with one stone, no pun intended. They say to Jesus in verse 5, in the law, you know, Moses commands us to stone such a woman what do you say? It's like a tennis match. The crowd now looks at Jesus. The words, I'm sure, hung in the air. 
I wonder at this moment if the woman begins to weep. How serious this has become. You ever think about a stoning? Is it pretty? You know, there's rules to how you kill people. You have to hit the person with a stone, not too small so they don't die quick, but not too big that they're killed by the first stone. Can you imagine this hitting someone's head? Someone's body? Jesus says, huh. And they say to Jesus, do we get to do this? I'm sure the woman knew God's word. The crowd sure did. The lawyer sure did. The scribes and the Pharisees. And oh, by the way, so did Jesus. Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife and the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and adulteress, uh, they must be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town, a virgin pledged to be married to another and sleeps with her, you shall take both of them out to the gate and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she was in the town and she did not scream for help and the man because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, and what do you say, Rabbi? There it is plain as day. What could Jesus do? I mean, he claimed to be, right? We've heard this, the great I am. He claimed that he actually came down from heaven. He claims to have equality with the Father. And since the Father actually gave this command to Moses, what in the world could Jesus do? What could he say? I mean, John sure got it right in verse 6. And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, the trap is better, by the way, than we first read. See, we think they're playing off Jesus' emotions. You know, Jesus, meek and mild, full of grace and truth. It's okay. You know, if he says, it's okay, you know, don't worry about it, I forgive you. Then they say, see, he's a false prophet. He's just, he's dismissing sin. But it's actually more deadly than that. See, at this time in life, only under Roman law, with Roman permission, under Roman courts, could you take a life. See, the Jewish leaders have a brilliant, brilliant, perfect setup. See, if Jesus agrees with them and they kill the woman, then they say, but we didn't do it. This rabbi told us to do it. It's the Romans crucify him. But if he submits and actually points them back to the Roman courts, then they say, see, he's, he's in league with Satan. He's in league with Rome. He, he, he thinks that Rome is more important than God's word and God's command. See, what they've done is they've placed Jesus right between Caesar and Moses. Now tell me, is that a good setup for a Jew in the first century? Unbelievable. They have him, right? This is a no-win situation. But again, see, they've misjudged what's in front of them. They've got nothing at all. See, they ask the question, and they don't realize who's sitting there. By the way, instead of answering them, he ignores them. I love this about Jesus. He ignores them. He completely disregards them. And I would remind all of us this morning, he is God in flesh in the second person of the Trinity. He can do really what he wants, and so he does. It says in verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
What did he write down, I wonder? A list of sins of those seeking to trap the woman or her or him? Or was it the sins of the woman? Or did he write down scripture? Oh, maybe he was writing down the missing party. Has anyone caught it? Where's the boy who's also sinful? Where's the man who's also supposed to be stoned? Maybe he was writing down what he was about to say. We don't know. But man, did he write something? The crowd is watching, the eyes of the crowd, the terror of the woman, the legal minds of the experts, hoping that that this upstart cult-like leader is now going to fall on his own sword. And And they're waiting anxiously. And when he does not respond in their timetable, his interrogators have no time for delay. And so it says in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. And he straightened up and then he said to him, love it. Well, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And went back down to writing. He stands, and he, and he responds, and I want you to catch this this morning. He says, okay, don't miss this. Okay, kill her. Did you catch it? Do it. If, you're, if, you're, if you need to do it, go ahead, but let me work this out for you. Since you're such a zealot for the law, I want to remind you, don't play games with God's word. Don't take it to your own advantage. Don't use God's name in vain. Don't get the Bible just the way you want it. See, don't you understand, if you use the law, it's like a nuclear bomb going off and everyone gets affected. Why? Oh, here's the side note, because you're all guilty. See, he brings down this condition that makes human judgment impossible See, she's broken the law, but oh, by the way, you have too. So I question, what's the difference between all of you according to God? So Jesus says, fine, kill her. Take the scone and crush her skull, do it. But here's my only caveat before you kill her. You just need to be perfect to throw the stone. Okay, I'm done. Goes back down to writing. He's quoting, interesting, Deuteronomy 17.6. It's important. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but never just on the testimony of one. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of the people. This is so important. He, is, he understands what he's doing. See, if you were the witness to a sin that had a death penalty, you had to throw the first stone. It, what God was doing was setting up people that they had to take a life if they really believed this was true. The witnesses go first, and then the crowd. And so Jesus says, you guys caught her. And by the way, I'm not even debating that you actually have caught her. So by the way, you as witnesses have every right. So go take her outside. And then by the way, the whole crowd's there. You all can join because she's done a terrible thing. But by the way, I just want to remind you of my one stipulation. You need to be perfect to throw the stone. Now the tables are turned. Suddenly what they attempted to make a religious and legal issue to trap someone now actually turns around and traps them. See, Jesus has now moved this deeply personal moral law issue between this woman and God, now an issue between these so-called men of God and God himself. I love when one old writer said, their pious armor has now been pierced as each of them faced the depth of their own sinful nature. Each has to deal with the inner darkness, which was so closely intertwined with their self-righteous legalism. Listen closely. Is this you? The savage delight in catching the woman in the act of sinning. The pompous pride in being able to use her as a human being, as a shameful test case to kill Jesus. Or the vengeful anger which drives them to get at Jesus. Are not these ugly passions we all seek to hide ourselves? Well, before they can answer or act, he breaks eye contact, he bends back down, and he begins his holy work in the sand again. 
Verse 8, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, and then the younger only, and then till Jesus was left with the woman who was still standing there. The old ones leave quickly. They know they're beaten. The younger, like all young generations, are filled with passion, black and white beyond belief. Those that wanted this so badly wait just a little bit longer, but then they realize they have to leave too. Even the crowds, interestingly, it says leave. And now we have just Jesus and this woman. It's like an amazing moment in film where the camera now pans close and now these two actors are left. What would happen next? It was Augustine that wrote that two persons are left, the unhappy woman, and I love this, and he calls Jesus compassion incarnate. Isn't that good? It says that Jesus straightens up again. He stood. Well, last time he did this, he took out the best thinkers of his day. Was he going to take out this woman too? And he looks at her. Catch this. He looks at her. Have you noticed so far she hasn't talked and he hasn't spoken to her? He hasn't looked at her at this whole encounter. And he begins to make contact with her. And Jesus straightens up and says in verse 10 to her, Woman, where is everybody? Has no one condemned you? See, he doesn't just ask a question. He asks the question. It's not a question, by the way, dripping with sarcasm. It's not a question filled with the unseen hate to trap her because, by the way, she's not a pawn to Jesus. He, he, he's not there to humiliate her. And, oh, by the way, he uh, is not there to gloat because he won the oral law argument of the day. Has no one condemned you? You imagine that woman's mourning? She'd basically been orally branded, condemned. Her last thoughts, of course, would be that she'd be surrounded by a bunch of men and an angry crowd, hurling insults at her, calling her whore, condemned, condemned, and her last moments would be crushed by all those rocks. And yet Jesus looks at her and says, Has no one condemned you? This is all we hear from the woman, the whole encounter. No one, sir. Neither then do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go, go now and leave your life of what? Sin. I don't condemn you, Jesus says, and by the way, I should condemn you. I am perfect, I am God in flesh. I know that you did this, but I choose not to hold your sin against you. I have come to offer life, not death. Now you see why I have come. Now you see what I'm all about. See, church, catch this this morning. Where is Jesus doing this? Where? In what place? Answer me. The temple. Jesus is sitting in the temple with a woman who is guilty. And at this moment, he's sitting there, and all the animal sacrifices are taking place, and all the grain offerings, and Jesus is looking at this woman who deserves death because her sin is real, because all sin deserves death, and he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. Do you see all this happening in this temple? This is a foreshadow of me. I have come because I am the high priest. I have come because I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I have come because I am going to declare people forgiven. And the whole temple has no clue that the one they're worshiping is forgiving someone right in the middle of them. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son 
that whoever believes on Jesus will not die but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes on Jesus is not condemned, but whoever chooses not to believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in God's one and only son. Later, Paul, the murderer of Christians, converted one of our greatest thinkers and leaders, wrote this in Romans 8.33, the core of our identity, the core of what all of us have become, like this woman, who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it he, who is it that condemns? Jesus Christ who died, more than that was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Jesus declares you are not condemned, but then he ends this great statement of grace with truth. He does not minimize her sin. He does not obfuscate. He does not say, well, it didn't really happen. No, no, no. It is magnified when he declares what it is. He actually says to her, no, you did do this, and it was wrong. But since I have chosen to forgive you and you are not condemned, what? Go and what? Sin no more. You cannot have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. You cannot say, I've been really forgiven by Jesus and not condemned and have no radical life change in your life. You cannot experience the love of God without the holiness of God. You cannot experience the holiness of God without the life of God and the love of God. Our culture so wants to make the love of God something we feel comfortable with. No, when you meet Jesus, you know your sin. And when you know your sin, he says you're not condemned. And then we are called into a life of holiness. Do not say things are not sin when they are. Scripture is clear what sin is. It is sin but it is the great work of God that comes and says, I don't condemn you. And then he says, since I have not condemned you, now walk, here's the word, in freedom. I love this passage because it levels the playing field of salvation. I love when one person wrote, where are you in this picture this morning? Are you the self-righteous religious folks, always eager to point at someone else's sin, but avoiding your own? Are you one in the crowd, enjoying the role of spectator, but you know, I'm not involved, but I am. Or are you like the woman, all too aware of your guilt and sin? He writes, it is this last category of people that our Lord came to save. Guilty people, helpless people, sinful people that know they deserve death and God's wrath, who cling to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. No one is too sinful. No one is too guilty to be saved. But many people are too good to be saved. That is that they think that they don't need grace when they desperately do. Jesus comes and he is looking for people that will not be prideful and not be arrogant and not be like the religious leaders and miss their own sin. He is looking for people that call themselves guilty, helpless, sinner. I deserve God's wrath. I cling to Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus declares and sings over your life, you are not condemned. The terrible thing that happened in this account is the religious leaders, when Jesus said, you need to be perfect to throw the first stone, and they knew they weren't, they walked away. They should have got beside the woman on her knees and his knees and their knees and said, Jesus, have mercy on us too. See, our world doesn't want to be told they're sinners. Our world wants to justify sin. But only those who come humbly and realize they need a Savior will ever find Jesus. 
And when they meet Jesus and he walks in their life and commands sin away and says you're no longer condemned, they will begin to walk a new life because they've experienced the love of God and the holiness of God is not duty, it is joy because they are not condemned. I ask you this morning, is this you? Are some of you among us not followers of Jesus yet? You must come like this woman with absolutely nothing to give and say, Jesus, have mercy. And I tell you this morning, he will do it to you and he will do it over you. Few of us or lots of us here are no longer on the outside with Jesus. We walk with him. What does this passage teach us? Two things quickly and then I'm done. Here's the first thing. Many of us, all of us, start like the adulterous woman, but we, over time, morph into the religious leaders, don't we? Can everyone, hold on, this is too important. Right here. We all start like the sinful woman, but as we do church for a long time, we become like the religious leaders. But what we learn from this passage is that we are called continually to deal with our own sin first and then with the sins of others. You need to do both. There's no issue with that. We need to be calling out sin in a deeply humble way. But let me say, God spare us from ever forgetting that we were all the adulterous woman and God protect this church from becoming these Pharisees and scribes that find joy and glee in someone else's folly. What does Paul says in Galatians 6? When brothers and sisters... If someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him or her, what's the word? Gently. But watch yourself that you also may be tempted. Side note, you may be turned on, by the way, of the sins you've been saved from. Be very careful who you do confession with. Just as a side note. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, you deceive yourself. Each person should test their own actions and then take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to anyone else. For each one should carry his own load. In other words, we are continually called to go before the same Jesus that gave us forgiveness and said we were no longer condemned and saying, make me sensitive to my sin. Show me my sin. Not so I feel beat up, so I can be free to live and help others. We are called as a church to ask the living Jesus to expose our sin regularly, to get in the heart of our motives so we can walk in power. But we are also called to look at each other and go, you know what? It's not okay that you're sleeping with someone before marriage. It's wrong. It's not okay, church, that you look at pornography. It's wrong. It's not okay to steal. It's wrong. It's not okay to go online and download things illegally. That is stealing, and that breaks the Ten Commandments. It's wrong. We do not have the right in this church ever to sin. Why? Because Jesus has said, I no longer condemn you. And we are called to turn to each other very gently and say, we are now above that, beyond that. Why? Because we are no longer condemned and Jesus loves us and we are called to live as holy people. And oh, by the way, we have the spirit of God in us so we can live a holy life. Am I saying you'll never fall? No, you're going to fall all the time. But we need to be very upfront with each other and say, I've worked through my stuff. I need to show you yours now too. In this attitude, the holiness of God is the result of the love of God. I want to say that again. The holiness of God is the result of the love of God. The more of the love of God you believe and know and experience, the more holiness you will desire because the love of God drives you to love Jesus because you cannot believe he said you're no longer condemned. Revival happens when the holiness of God goes through the roof in a church because the love of God is believed at our core. 
If you don't believe you are the adulterous woman, you'll never love Jesus. God comes to some of us and says, it is time to meet me. He reminds all of us, never evolve into this terrible pharisaical mentality. Deal with your stuff. Honestly ask him every day and then step out very gently with others and say, can I help you along? And last thing, and I'm done, is this. The lordship of Jesus, like I've preached, needs to keep growing. Don't ever dare conclude from this story that Jesus doesn't condemn sin or anybody. He does. Neither is our Lord teaching that we shouldn't ever step out and say some things are right or wrong. Lordship is the sign that given love of Jesus has been connected and given. I end with this, and as the team comes up, I just want to remind everyone, why did Jesus say to the woman, go and sin no more? When I heard that the first time, it was sort of harsh in my mind. Woman, go and sin no more. But I, but I want to remind everyone this morning, the lordship of Jesus in a church, in a family, in a connect group, in a life, is about freedom. The reason why Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more, is because A, she's experienced his love, and B, he doesn't want her to die. Jesus doesn't come and expose our sins to destroy us, but so we can walk in freedom. Does anyone in our church want to walk in more freedom? I do. I do. Only when we come close to Jesus does he begin to do this. So let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll see how this uh, works out. Jesus, for the power of your gospel, for the power of your word, (laughs) where you walk in between Caesar and Moses and you actually change the tables. Awesome. Thank you that you cut through the burden of religion and the power of unforgiveness and the power of sin. Some of us here this morning and online have never met you. And so if that's you, pray this prayer. Jesus Christ, I am that adulterous woman. I am helpless. I have sinned. I am broken. I, am, I deserve your wrath. I have lived a life of darkness. And I cling to you and pray you'd forgive me. If you just prayed this, this is what Jesus says over you. I condemn you. I do not condemn you any longer. Go now and live a new life. This is what he declares over you. For others of us, we pray and we invite your Holy Spirit to draw closer and closer to show us our own sin before we deal with the sins of others. Oh, make us so sensitive to our own sins so we'll be changed. And then, Lord, help us to very gently pray and point out sin in others so holiness will grow in our church. And lastly, we pray for the lordship of Jesus in this church for one reason, because the lordship of Jesus is about experienced love and it brings freedom. Jesus, bring freedom to C4 Church. Bring freedom in our families and in our connect groups. Bring spiritual freedom. Many have read about, thought about, heard about, but never experienced. Jesus, work out this, we pray in our church. And everyone said, amen. Amen.